Thank you for tuning in to RTM Nation Online, where we believe that you will receive the abundance of peace, prosperity, security, stability, health, healing, and truth. If you would like to learn more about the ministry, click the link below. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the channel. Now let's get into the message. You know, if, if you don't mind, please get your Bibles ready to 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, Message Bible version. We'll do a quick recap. And, and for those of you who have been coming to Wesley Chapel for a while to hear or when we were at, at the other location, you know, I haven't put my voice version of the Bible to the side. And that's a big favorite for me. But I, I like you to be able to see them also. So I'm trying my hardest to get into the Message Bible. You know, I know it, it's still a word, but sometimes I think the, the voice just says it like it speaks to me. You know what I mean? Everybody got something that speaks to them. So sometimes it, it speaks Benjamin ease, you know. But 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 in the Message Bible was basically David was saying, hey, listen, if there is there anyone left, anyone alive, anyone in Saul's family that I can show some honor to or some kindness to in honor of Jonathan, Jonathan, who loved him. And we put that challenge on us. We said, listen, is there anyone from the house that hurt you that you can show kindness to in honor of the God that loves you? We finished all of that discussion and we went all the way down to verse 13. You would put verse 13 message Bible on the screen for me. And in 2 Samuel chapter, chapter 9, it ended by saying, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, taking all his meals at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. We said, that's the perfect picture of how God treats us. Our father allows us to sit at his table, flaws and all. Knowing what we've done, knowing the conditions of our hearts sometimes, knowing that we're weighted down with unforgiveness, God still allows us to call him father and to sit at his table, flaws and all. One of the final things we spoke was, as believers, I believe that we can forgive because family forgiveness is part of our DNA. Why do we say that? God lives on the inside of us. The spirit of God lives on the inside of us. And forgiveness, well, that's just part of God's way of loving. Now we launch out today. Turn to 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 20, Message Bible. Why can we say forgiveness or forgiving is part of God's loving character. Reading off three passages of scripture fairly rapidly, starting at 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone boasts, I love God and goes right on hating his brother or sister, thinking nothing of it, he's a liar. If he won't love the person he can see, how can he love the God he can't see? The command we have from Christ is blunt. Loving God includes loving people. You've got to love both. John 3.16, King James Version, very familiar passage of scripture, reads like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Forgiveness is just one of the things that God does. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12, Message Bible. So chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely as the master forgave you. Forgiveness is part of a believer's DNA. Now, when people wrong us, though, often that 11-letter word forgiveness is not the first word that comes to mind. Many other more choice words come to mind, and most of them are much shorter in length. A good collection of three to four letter words can completely express the way we're feeling at the moment. But family, consider this. Although some of those words that we use, those choice expressions, are actually in the Bible, but not the way we use them. By the way, just so people know that, not the way we use them. But you can find some of those choice words in, in the Bible. When people wrong us, sometimes we, iter we retaliate with words and deeds that run counter to our heavenly DNA. The bottom line is being wronged does not feel good. And when someone wrongs us, instinctively, our heart and our mind automatically paints that person as a villain. And as much as we might try not to put that label on that person, the memory of the action done to us that caused them to earn that label causes us to think it very hard to consider them anything other than evil or a villain or wicked. Go to Genesis 3. Our hope is that today, this session eases that reality. Sometimes, in hindsight, when we look at something that we've done or something we've said or an action we've taken, in hindsight, we wish we wouldn't have done it. We wish we would have walked away from it. We wish we would have just left it alone, but we didn't. The same is likely true with some of the people that hurt us. When they look back on it in hindsight, they wish they never would have done it. When the opportunity presented itself, they wish they would have just turned away and made another decision, but they didn't. Here in Genesis 3, we're going to start off with our first example. Remember, we're, we're aiming for, our goal is forgiveness. Starting in verse 1, Message Bible. This is Adam and Eve and their 
desire to have fruit salad. <laughs> it reads, the serpent was clever, more clever than any wild animal God had made. He spoke to the woman, do I understand that God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, not at all. We can eat from the trees in the garden. It's only about the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, don't eat from it. Don't even touch it or you'll die. The serpent told the woman, you won't die. God knows that the moment you eat from that tree, you will see what's really going on. You will be just like God, knowing everything, ranging all the way from good to evil. Here the servant strikes up a discussion with Eve and standing here today with the Bible in our hand, we say to ourselves, Eve, what in the world are you doing? Entertaining a conversation with this serpent. Standing here today, we view the serpent as evil. The question is though, should Eve have viewed the serpent as evil? Consider that Adam and Eve interacted with these creatures every single day. In fact, Adam <coughs> named all the creatures. If we go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 19 in the King James Version, it reads like this, and out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found any help meet for him. So why would Eve consider it wrong to interact with the servant, serpent? She wouldn't. She likely would not. Back to chapter 3, verse 6, Message Bible. When the woman saw that the tree looked like good eating and realized what she would get out of it, she'd know everything. She took and ate the fruit. Stop right there. Clearly, clearly Eve knew God's instructions. And clearly the serpent's premise ran counter to God's instructions. So we sit here and we'll say, Eve, what in the world are you doing? But if we pan back from a macro view and look at Eve's actions in total and truly evaluate everything surrounding what she did, what is the totality of her crime? What is the totality of her, her error, her wrong? If you think about it this way, and you allow us to take that serpent and for a second, instead of calling it a serpent, let's personify, let's call it a person. We would say that all she did, quote unquote, all she did, 
a big part, let me reflect that, a big part of what she did was she listened to the words of someone she had known all of her life. She listened to the words. She evaluated the words of someone she trusted. She considered the words of someone who had never hurt or wronged her before. When we layer the various components of what, into, what went into a life decision, at times, that opens us up for our heart to forgive. When we consider all things that were going on into that decision, not just the wrong, at times that opens our heart up a little bit more to forgive. Continuing to verse with verse six. When the woman saw that the tree looked like good eating and realized what she would get out of it, she'd know everything. She took and ate the fruit and then gave some to her husband and he ate. Likewise, Adam. Adam ate the fruit presented to him by Eve, someone he trusted. Now, does the fact that he trusted Eve make what he did right? No. It doesn't. Did Eve motivate him in any way to eat the fruit? I think it's well within the realm of reasonableness for us to think that Eve had some influence, some influence on him actually eating it and going against what God had, what he knew God had said. But regardless of, of, of what we kind of put around it, none of our rationale makes it right. None of it makes it right. Putting context around this biblical event does not change the outcome at all. Read verse 7 with me. It reads like this. Immediately the two of them did see what was really going on, saw themselves naked. They sewed fig leaves together, makeshift clothes for themselves. So now the thought is entering their mind of consequences. The action's been taken, perhaps innocently, but taken. Here we have the situation. A few verses later, we'll find that Adam, Eve, and of course the serpent are going to end up experiencing the results of going against God's wishes. God is going to judge them. And he is going to issue out consequences. Sadly, those consequences end up impacting all future generations. In other words, their wrong actions impacted people. It doesn't matter how much context we put around why they did what they did. The bottom line is we can agree that it still impacted people. Even if we can dig into their thought process, even if we could somehow get 
close enough to draw the conclusion that, man, we really want to give them sympathy, we have to recognize that it still doesn't change the outcome. It doesn't change history. Say this with me. But understanding the events, Surrounding their, decisions, surrounding their decisions hopefully makes them, hopefully makes them more, like you and me. more like you and me. In the same manner, putting context around what led people to do us wrong does not erase history. It does not change how they talk to you or talk to me. It does not change how they treated us it does not change how they used us. It does not change how they disrespected us. It does not change how they lied to us. But understanding the life situations that surrounded the decisions that they made hopefully make them more like you and me. In other words, hopefully it makes them more human. Say these words with me. When we humanize people, we humanize people and, not them, and not demonize them, we open the door, open the door for, forgiveness for forgiveness to enter our hearts. To enter our hearts. Go to 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon ruled over a situation that provides us other points of discussion here. It involves two women and two infants, one infant dead, the other infant alive. First Kings chapter three, we're going to start at verse 16. The verses before that is when God endowed Sam, Solomon with wisdom. Basically, Solomon didn't ask for wealth and riches for himself. He asked for wisdom to be able to rule wisely. And God said, you know what? Because you asked for wisdom, I'll give it to you. But because you didn't ask for this other stuff and your heart was in the right place, I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for. But the account that we're interested in right here, starting in verse 16. The very next thing, two prostitutes showed up before the king. I love the way the Message Bible says two prostitutes because that allows us to take an interesting segue here and to make a point. The two women are prostitutes, and that is a profession that the Bible clearly views as immoral. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read out the Amplified Classic starting in verse 13. We can go through the Bible and find a whole bunch of scriptures about sexual immorality and what the Bible thinks about that. Here's just one example. But with this in mind, we want to circle back and identify something that's going to help us forgive, I hope. It says... Food is intended for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will finally end the functions of both 
and bring them to nothing. The body is not intended for sexual immorality, but it is intended for the Lord, and the Lord is intended for the body to save, sanctify, and raise it again. And God both raised the Lord to life and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not see and know that your bodies are members, bodily parts of Christ the Messiah? Am I therefore to take the parts of Christ and to make them parts of a prostitute? Never, never. Or do you not know and realize that when a man joins himself with a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? The two, it is written, shall become one flesh. But the person who is united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun immorality and all sexual looseness. Flee from impurity in thought, word, or deed. Any other sin which a man commits is one outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Obviously, the Bible thinks that this profession of prostitution is immoral. So clearly a bad thing. But let's ask ourselves, why would somebody choose that as a profession? Why would somebody choose that as a profession? The reasons include to earn money to put food on the table, to buy clothes, to maintain a roof over their head. Perhaps they felt trapped by life and saw no other viable option. So tell me, looking at prostitution, at the individual in that profession with that light, does that make that individual an evil person? No. Not only were they potentially trapped into it by life and saw no other option, but they could have even been forced to do so. Back to first Kings three. Continuing on, the woman said, my master, this woman and I live in the same house. While we were living together, I had a baby. Three days after I gave birth, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There wasn't anyone else in the house except for the two of us. The infant son of this woman died one night when she rolled over on him in her sleep. Question. Did the mother of the deceased infant intend to kill the child? No, she did not. Say this with me. There are people, there are people in, our lives in our lives who never meant to hurt us, to hurt us. Yet, their yet their actions had the effect, had the effect of, killing of killing something in us. What's an example of this? Because when people hurt us, we tend to demonize them. We tend to paint them as a villain. But it's likely 
that those individuals never intended to hurt us at all. We don't deny that something in us may have died because of it. But if we can allow our hearts to open up to intent, forgiveness can enter in. What does that kind of look like in a, in a home relationship? Such an example. You can have a husband and a wife who separate or who are getting a divorce and the unattend, unintended outcome or fallout is injured children. They never intended that to happen. Yet something inside a child died because of it. We must endeavor to humanize people who have wronged us because humans is what they are. Back to 1 Kings 3. The mother of the living child is explaining, she got up in the middle of the night and took my son. I was sound asleep, mind you, and put him at her breast and put her dead son at my breast. When I got up in the morning to nurse my son, here he was, here was this dead baby. But when I looked at him in the morning light, I saw immediately that he wasn't my baby. Not so, the other woman said. The living one's mine, the dead one's yours. The first woman countered, no, your son's the dead one. Mine's the living, the living one. They went back and forth this way in front of the king. The king said, what are we to do? This woman says the living son is mine and the dead one is yours. And this woman says, no, the dead one is yours, the living one is mine. After a moment, the king said, bring me a sword. They brought the, king, the sword to the king. He said, cut the living baby in two. Give half to one and half to the other. The real mother of the living baby was overcome with emotion for her son. And she said, oh, no, master, give her the whole baby alive. Don't kill him. But the other one said, if I can't have him, you can't have him. Cut away. The king gave his decision. Give the living baby to the first woman. Nobody's going to kill this baby. She's the real mother. The, world got, the word got around. Everyone in Israel heard of the king's judgment. They were all in awe of the king, realizing that it was God's wisdom that enabled him to judge truly. Now, we know that the living child is not the child of the false mother. But let us use the responses of the false mother to bring us some understanding and some more clarity and more insight into what we're talking about. We can all imagine that the mother of the deceased child 
is experiencing terrible, terrible grief. And the brutal reality of that pain that she's experiencing is causing her to willingly inflict hurt on innocent people to help console her misery. Consider that. A person who's in so much pain caused by an event, perhaps not thinking clearly, is taking the position that they will allow innocent people to get hurt to console their own misery. That is how some of us may have gotten wronged. A person so weighted down by something that has happened, maybe not in clear thought, maybe not in their right mind, taking an action that caused injury to one of us. It could easily be a spouse that's so emotionally hurt by the other that they lash out at the innocent ones in the home. Or an example more similar to the case before Solomon, imagine a parent that's so traumatized and impacted by the death of one child that they inadvertently fail to give proper care to the remaining living child that is still in the home or remaining children. They're not looking to neglect them. They're not looking to not show them love. But because they're so weighted down in grief and loss, they become blind to the actions that they're taking or not taking that is damaging the remaining children in the home that are still living. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 4. If we can learn to humanize people instead of demonizing the people that have done us wrong, forgiveness has an opportunity. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, we're going to return to a very familiar fellow. Verse 1 reads like this. Saul's son, Ishbosheth, a lot of these Seth, Ishbosheth, heard that Abner had died in Hebron. His heart sank. The whole country was shaken. Ishbosheth had two men who were captains of raiding bands. One was Bana, the other, Rechab. They were sons of Rimon. And Barathite, the Benjamite. Good Jesus. <laughs> I always ask myself, where was just the Johnnies and the Rickies? <laughs> Nobody named Ed in the Bible? <laughs> My Lord in heaven. The people of Baruth, Baroth had been assigned to Benjamin ever since they had escaped. Get them. They still live. They still live there as resident aliens. Here's where we want to get to verse four. Here's where we want to get to. 
it so happened that Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son who was maimed in both feet. We know a person like that, don't we? He was five years old. The report on Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and ran. Read this part with me. But in her hurry to get away, she fell and the boy was maimed. His name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was injured by a caregiver who was trying to keep him safe. It was never his nurse's intent to hurt him, but she did accidentally. If we were to stretch ourselves and put this account in different perspective, we could say this. Mephibosheth was wronged for the right reason. The same can be true with some of our histories. Family, we may have been wronged for the right reason. Say this with me. In my life, I may have been wrong for the right reason. In other words, I may have been wrong by people acting out on what they perceived was the best decision for me. Some of us may have been wronged by people simply acting out on what they perceived at the time was the best decision for you or the best decision for me. Am I saying that every wrong act is unintentional? Of course not. There are people out there we know them, we've seen them on, in the media, on the news. There, there are people out there who do things with the intent of bringing injury to others. There, those people exist. Now, the hard pill to swallow, though, is that God directs us to find forgiveness in our heart for them, too. But if we get back to our primary train of thought, our primary focus, what is that focus? That focus is us identifying walls within us of unforgiveness and prayerfully tearing those walls down. If we were to get our focus squarely back on that, I want us to recognize that there are people in our life that we have probably given the villain label to. And in giving them the villain label, we have become blind to how we know life works. We have caused ourselves to ignore that situations and circumstances, as we know can happen, can drive people to do things that in hindsight, they wish they'd never done. 
Life circumstances and situations can cause people to inflict pain accidentally. Life circumstances and situations, the cards they have been dealt, so to speak, can cause somebody to take an action that although hurt us, they perceived that the moment was really in our best interest. So I'm doing my best to, to convey what I'm, what I'm hoping what God is hoping, what we're trying to get us all to, to see and do is in our minds to maybe just evaluate the people that have done us wrong in a different light. To allow that possibility to at least reach the table of evaluation in our heart. I think I want to say this part together as well. Say, if I, will, if I allow, if I allow God's, love God's love to help me evaluate, to help me evaluate the people that have wronged me in a different light, unexpectedly, the negative history, the negative history I'm, holding on to, I'm holding on to, I may learn it is less of a matter, of a, matter of, a of a person setting out to harm me, to harm me and, more and more of a case of how life, of how life happened, to a human. happened to a human. Family, if you truly lay out all the evidence, remember, in the court of law, you can have someone literally kill someone. But what the judge and jury wants to want to know is what were the extenuating circumstances? Was it outright murder or was it self-defense? Were they out to do wrong or was it just something that happened? And I can see how they can fall into that situation. If we take the time to take what we know out of life and truly put that as the backdrop of the people that wronged us, unexpectedly we may find that the negative histories that we're holding on to is less of a matter of people setting out to harm us and more of a case of how life happened to a human. We're heading our way to forget on our way to forgiveness. And I'm going to tell you either you can forgive anytime. There's there is no hold on. Wait a minute. I'm going to forgive somebody next Thursday. You can do it right now. <laughs> but I am going to give you a heads up to where we're headed. If not next Sunday, definitely the Sunday after that. We are going to have a time here, family, of forgiveness. And I want you to, Greta wants you to, God wants you to, you should want you to. You need to come here prepared, 
to let it go. To let it go. We, we're gonna, we're gonna explain exactly what that let it go means. But forgiveness, if, if, if I'm going to love you, I got to tell you, forgiveness is about you. It's not about the person that hurt you. Amen. So to be free, yes. to get beyond where you are now and to let those shackles and chains fall is our goal. <clears throat> to let the healing begin. Can I, can, are you, are you telling me that I am going to be a hundred percent healed at that moment? I am saying healing can't end up being healing if it don't begin. So get ready. We're warning that wall of unforgiveness down. We pray that today's message was a blessing to you. If you would like to help us further expand the vision, simply text the word GIVERTM to the number 41444 or visit us online at www.revealingtruth.org. Now remember, Jesus loves you.